delivering clear, concise, and entertaining content on demand, this is SharperTalkMedia.com. Join the community. Welcome to Higher Up, the podcast designed to help you take your business to a higher level. Get the latest news and updates on everything human resources. Unlock the occupational DNA so you can identify, select, develop, and retain top talent. And now your host, John Beck. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Higher Up, the podcast devoted to everything human resources and taking your organization to a higher level. Well, our shows have been going well, and we are in the midst of a what I call a safety feature. Today, our guest and show panelist, Paul Amade, has 23 years of leadership experience in the area of environmental health and safety. In his current role as Vice President of EHS, Paul leads the continued improvement and advancement of safety systems and reporting tools and coordinates all EHS-related administrative procedures. Paul also oversees regional and branch safety personnel for the U.S. and Canada, as well as employee and customer safety-related training for one of the nation's largest industrial service providers. Paul has held leadership positions directly supervising field safety professionals as well as corporate management roles, developing safety plans, and leading strategic initiatives. Paul received his Bachelor of Science in Safety, Health, and Physical Education from Nichols State University in Louisiana. Paul Amaday, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Well, we're excited to have you, and we're glad to have you face-to-face. Yes, it's really nice, John. So, Paul, as we kind of jump right in, and, you know, our topic today is uh, we're going to be discussing, obviously, safety is with your background. It's quite impressive, and I so want to just tell the entire audience everything I know about you, but I'm going to keep some of that to myself. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. (laughs) Good, good. Our goal is to have the listener take away just a little nugget, something that they may take out of each podcast that they can put back into their organization. So when we talk about titles and we talk about environmental health safety and EHS, tell us a little bit about what, what is environmental health safety? Tell us a little bit about that role or position in a company. Yeah, so often people just talk safety or they just talk environmental and even the health side. Basically what it is, is it's all three of those functions, environmental, which is treating our environment uh you know, with respect and making sure we don't harm our environment, the health of our employees, and also the safety of our employees. And, you know, sometimes health and safety, people confuse them, but basically health is, is more of the uh, chronic type illnesses from exposures where safety is more of an acute type. So it, it takes all three functions to, uh, to work together to have a successful program. When we think about it, and again, going back to our audience, we'll have companies that are tuning in today that might have 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 employees, all the way up to several thousands of employees. And I guess one of the questions is, and, and I've heard organizations ask me in the area of human resources, they'll say, well, John, you know, at what point do we need to get a director of HR in? And, you know, and we kind of discuss that. So on the flip side, when an organization has folks that work in a safety sensitive environment, 
is there a magic number? When does an organization look in the mirror and say, gee, it's time to bring in a safety professional? Quite often I'm asked that same question. And, and my normal response to that is, is you have to look at the risk. A company that has a hundred people may not need one. Whereas a company that needs 50 may because of the risk associated with the work and the type of work they're doing. I normally throw 50 out there as a number, but I always base it off of risk. Depending on how that company operates, a lot of factors, which we'll talk about here soon, uh, safety cultures and, and expectations all play into that. Normally, it helps to have a consultant type person come in and evaluate you what you may need to do. And they can also sometimes provide someone rather than hiring someone and putting them on your staff. Consultants can do that for you. So outsource safety professional. Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of professionals out there. That's what they do. They come in, they assess what a company needs. They look at your programs, what you have, and they can tell you if you need one or not. And a lot of times they can provide you one at a lower cost. That way you don't have to pick up benefits and, and all the other things. That so sort of sharing that safety services with other organizations, kind of almost uh, co-oping it in correct. a way. Okay, great. Well, that, that is an awesome recommendation. When it gets to the point to where an organization says, okay, we're at the point where we do need to bring someone in, an environmental health safety professional, what should an organization look for? And and what I mean by that is, you know, I know certain degrees and certifications, and I want you to cover those for us as well, but also uh, a couple other things that you know I'm all about. I'm all about the fit of the right type of person. So that's important because, uh, you know, we, we're not looking for the eye in the sky that's just going to watch people and tell them everything they're doing wrong. So it has to take the certain type of individual. So just kind of give me a little background. If you were hiring for an organization, a safety professional, tell me what you would be looking for and that what would be your expectation. One of the first things I look for is someone that's really well balanced, someone that has people skills, but someone that is also driven by procedures. And that's really important because in the field of safety, you have to have people skills. You have to know how to talk to people and you have to know how to build trust. So this person has to come across as a person that's really well balanced and, and has all those attributes. And trust being critical, I know, and I know we're going to cover that here shortly. In fact, let's just dive right in. I know that something that you're passionate about, in fact, I've Google Paul Amade, you, you'll see numerous articles and in, in, in different things uh, of such that he's done. And one of those areas is developing a safety culture uh, is something that you speak passionately about and have written numerous articles on. So let's just dive right in and let's just talk culture for a moment. Developing a safety culture, where do you start? Uh, tell us a little bit about what are we talking about when we're thinking developing a safety culture in an organization? Yes, that's always one of the questions that people like to start with. And I always tell them we can talk probably for hours on that. And but, maybe we'll come back and have a whole show on that. <laughs> but, but, you know, in a nutshell, the two or three things that, that really, really drive a safety culture is your first one is that you have to have policies and procedures. So often people misunderstand that behavior-based safety and cultures aren't driven by policies, but they are because that's how you hold people accountable. So basically you need the two parts, which would be behavior-based safety and your policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then that, and then that'll lead to the, I guess you would say the foundation 
of a, developing that type of culture. That, that's correct. With, without those, you have no foundation to build all the other programs you need because for a successful program, it takes a lot of different programs to be successful. Right. You, you can't be successful with just one or two programs. As I've read that you've said in the past, safety doesn't happen by accident. No, that's, <laughs> that's correct. You, you have to plan it. I know personally in our, within our organization, we plan out a five-year roadmap, and, and that's why we call it our roadmap. Wow. A roadmap to making sure everybody gets home safe, right? If, if you don't plan for it, it doesn't happen. Right. One of your articles, you, and you quoted uh, uh, information from OSHA. Actually, this was news to me, and I'm going to double-check this with you, but it looks like OSHA reports that there's almost 24,000 injuries that occur every day. That's correct. I was floored when I, I mean, literally floored when I read that number. And I was thinking to myself, okay, maybe that was a month and a misprint. But so we're saying throughout the United States, there's 24,000 injuries that occur in the workplace every day. Every day, John. That every is, day. That is phenomenal. What type of impacts does that have on business? What you see is that anytime you have an injury, there's so many things that come into play. You're going to start affecting your, your profits because you have people that are out. If someone is out, they can't work. You may have damage to equipment. When those things happen, you start affecting the profitability of your company. It really does get into the bottom line of your company. But also the other things that can affect is morale. Nothing worse than bad morale. In the human resource world, and, and I know those two worlds collide. In fact, intersection of safety in human resources, there's results, right? Because <laughs> they, they do work hand in hand somewhat. Do you find that organizations typically look at a safety department within their organization or the safety function as a cost center? Because I look at it as a profit center. In other words, if I had to look at the ROI of what the function is by that group, a safety group within an organization, to me, they're fighting for organizational profit every day. Do the executives sometimes see that as a cost? In companies where the safety culture is really, really good, they understand the importance of a good safety culture and a good program and, and the right people driving it because they understand that workers' comp costs, all these costs come directly off your bottom line. If you can save $1 million in workers' comp costs because you have a safe environment, that $1 million goes directly back into your profits and, and it comes off your bottom line. Right. A safety organization with a, with a good safety culture would look at a safety group as a revenue protection group. <laughs> it, it really is, John. And, and one other area that people are really amazed to see when you have a good safety program is that a good safety program, everything is planned out. So it really helps with your efficiency, how you're going to plan the job and how you're going to do it, which in any business, efficiency equals better yeah, profits. Better profits, right. One of the things you hear all the time in organizations, and my initial thought process when I heard behavioral-based safety uh, drew me to a, a little different line of thinking. Talk a little bit about it. I know you're an expert in this field, uh, nationally recognized, in fact. And what I'd like to hear a little bit about is explain to our listeners first. We'll spend a whole episode just talking about it in detail. But give me the overview snapshot of what is behavioral safety in itself. Behavioral-based safety is also sometimes called people safety. And it's where you, you really work with people to understand the difference between a 
unsafe behavior and a safe behavior. It's not only about identifying those, but giving them the tools to make the right decision to always go with the safe behavior. As humans, we have behaviors. We know that in in, in everything we do. And we have to work within ourselves on an everyday basis to understand those. When we talk about behavioral safety, is that something that we're just pushing onto the front line or is that filtered through the organization or is it more important for the front line worker? No, it, it has to be from top to bottom, bottom to top. You, you have to have a culture where the CEO can go out and talk to a field employee and not offend anyone. But just as important, that field employee should be able to walk up to a CEO and have a good safety conversation with them. It has to flow up, down, in between, and, and everywhere. If you don't have it top to bottom, you don't have the culture you're looking for. When we're talking about behavioral-based safety, observation being a part of that, when someone is behaving in a safe way, we recognize that through recognition. And when someone is, let's say, engaging in a what we would call unsafe behavior, other observers have the opportunity to help coach that individual through the right way versus reprimand, or what's the approach with that? Well, you definitely have to recognize both safe behaviors and unsafe behaviors because it's important that people get feedback and you give them both. So when someone is doing the correct behavior, you have to tell them, you know, great job, good idea. And and also you can take that and possibly use it somewhere else. They may be doing something that is not the norm, but it is a safe behavior. So you have to learn from it. But when someone is engaging in unsafe behaviors, you have to take that opportunity to coach them and make them aware that what they're doing is not acceptable. A lot of times, you know, we do things because we don't know better. Right. Or that's the way everyone does it, and that may be acceptable. So you want to coach people because no one comes to work every day saying, you know what, I'm going to hurt myself today. Yeah. We, we just don't do that. So yeah. it's about coaching and, and trying to make your team strong. Yeah, our human fail-safes don't allow us to go into situations and say, I think I want to hurt myself today, right? Absolutely. <laughs> we're talking about then leads directly to accountability, not only accountability, I would imagine with the frontline worker, but management and organizations as well. So how does accountability not lead to finger pointing and what role does that play in developing a safety culture? Yeah. So, so often when you have finger pointing, you have people making excuses. A, A good excuse is not a substitution for good performance and I know that sounds kind of silly, but in reality, you can't make excuses because excuses mean you're blaming someone or you're blaming yourself or, or there's a reason you didn't do things. So accountability has to be driven by good leadership that, you know, they demand accountability from their employees and their employees demand it out of them. You have to hold each other accountable. Right. Now, I'm sure that there comes a time when you do coach and there may be a possibility that you may have to reprimand or just a, a real unsafe situation. Does that happen, or is there a fine line between the two? Yes, it, it's so often in companies they have things such as life-saving rules or cardinal rules, and these are rules that, if broken, there's usually a reprimand, sometimes including termination. And a lot of safety professionals would rather coach people through those because we know that they hadn't, broke that rule or they hadn't done anything because in most cases they wanted to. So you have to treat reprimanding people with the intent and it's really hard to get to intent. 
but we always prefer to coach. But right. as in my opinion, if someone breaks a, a rule that could uh, have them killed or severely injured more than one or two times, you have to look at them as, are they a good person for your company? It doesn't mean they're a bad person. Right. They just may not be the right fit for the type of work they're doing. And you just mentioned a word that resonates home with me for sure, and that's about fit. When we drill down, and this might be slightly off topic a little bit, but when we drill down, get to that point to where we're not finding that an individual is performing as expected, do you feel like it could come down to sometimes a personal or whether it be a personality or behavioral fit? Absolutely, John. We talk about this quite often in our industry with risk tolerance. Risk tolerance. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. So, you know, when someone has that uh, higher tolerance for risk, they tend to be somewhat more out there, I guess you would say, or exposing themselves to a possible event or situation. And then, you know, that could be identified, obviously, as a, as a situation that wouldn't be positive for the organization, which kind of rose right into the next area. And that's about, we talked lightly about it in our intro, but let's just talk a little bit about trust. And when we talk about trust, you know, here I am working and, you know, maybe we'll just run through a little scenario. So I'm working in an organization and I'm one of, you know, in a frontline situation. How important is that trust factor between supervisors, managers, and that, and that workforce? Yeah, it, it's it's one of the key features in in this in the program. If you don't have trust, no one believes you, and if they don't believe you, they don't follow your lead, and they just don't buy into the system. So they have to trust that what you're saying is in the best interest for them, and you, and the company, everyone together, one team. Right, and and I would imagine that having that consistent message throughout management is probably key. You can't have one group preaching one message and another group doing something entirely different. No, absolutely. That's correct. Now, when we talk about trust and, you know, not maybe in your organization, does that mean that, Hey, the employee or the frontline worker follows leads blindly, or do they have some kind of autonomy to make certain decisions based on a situation? Or let's just talk about that no, absolutely. We we want employees to to question. You don't have a questioning attitude. You will never uh, improve where you are. And people that lead, just follow blindly are more apt to make mistakes. You want people to understand and question not not only what they're doing if it's the safest way, but also possibly question a supervisor or or anyone in that role because that's what's going to drive that trust. So you would say that questioning attitude, I guess you will, is really part of developing a safe culture. Absolutely. It's all about the conversations. Yeah. Uh, you have to have good safe safety conversations. And if you're not having those conversations, none of it works. It has to be a good conversation. Yeah. I, I really like that part because to me, I, uh, I've, I go on site in these facilities quite often and, you know, and I'm not a safety professional, but I can tell you, I am uh, taking a crash course on it and, and I'm getting acclimated pretty quick. And, you know, one of the things that I find when I'm walking through a facility and I'm obviously always escorted, I'm not scared to ask a question. And I can walk into these sites and tell you that um, the feeling I get when I walk on. Okay, so for example, I had the opportunity to walk on a site with your organization. 
not long ago. And I felt when I was with that group that I felt actually safe in terms of how I was being treated, how I was being led around, uh, in the direction in which I was receiving. And if I did not understand something correctly, I asked a question. So I think that questioning part is great. But I want to share a story with you in the audience, which I think kind of resonates with me. And it's a story I've always, uh, I've told a few times. I came up to a, a facility and I got to the uh, entrance area where I was being checked in. And I'm not going to you know, get into the exact details, but I think this story is just kind of funny. So I get there, they sit me down. And again, not being a experienced safety professional and still, I'm still kind of on the outside trying to figure it out and, and, and learn more. I uh, sit down and they give me a 15 minute safety video, which I watched, you know, I watched it pretty attentively. And uh, once I completed the video, they handed me a respirator, goggles, and a bunch of equipment. And then they pointed into the facility and said, go down three stop signs and take a left. And then you'll find this building on the right. Well, I can tell you that I didn't feel like I was totally equipped in the, <laughs> from that 15-minute video, you know, had, had something occurred, you know, and, and I was looking at the wind socks, and I was trying to pay attention to where I was in this facility, and it was a pretty big facility, and, you know, I'm driving around in this facility unescorted with this box of gear, and I can tell you when I left there, I was feeling like, um, gee, I don't know if I was prepared for, for that. So not everyone, not all organizations are what I would say practicing that level of what you're talking about, developing that type of safety culture, because I know in a lot of facilities that would never happen. No, and, and you know, John, it, it's one of the reasons that a lot of contractors and subcontractors have the programs they do, because not all of our customers are as in tune to safety and our needs as others right it's important to have your own programs yeah exactly and you know when i had the opportunity to spend some time with your your folks uh it was incredible incredible you guys do a phenomenal job so let's just kind of move right on here we talk about and you've you've talked about this and that is you know in organizations you often hear somebody say yeah but we don't do it like that or yeah that's different at another site or yeah, that comes from corporate, but it's not really our thing. Or we do it this way because we think it's safer. What that leads to me and what you discussed, and I, I never really heard about this before, even though you hear about it sometimes in some organizations, but what about the subculture? You, you talk a little bit about sub-safety cultures within an organization and how there are pros and cons to that in both sides. Yeah, what you what you see a lot of times is a company as a whole may have a a great safety culture, or it may not be great. But what you find is sometimes it may be regionally, or it may be by the state, or even one office compared to another may have a different safety culture. And that's always not bad. It's always not good. What it is is a learning experience for you to understand why they're successful and why they're not. And so you do see that, and and there's could be separated by different things. It could be ethnic background or, or whatever, depends on what the makeup is of your organization and regionally that that differs a lot so you're gonna have different subcultures you need to learn to uh, recognize them and understand why they are good or why they are bad and if they're good there's takeaways i'm sure and if they're not then there's opportunity for improvement absolutely yeah 
So what we were able to talk a little bit about today is, you know, developing a positive safety culture. And for those organizations and, you know, kind of summing it up, you know, giving an organization or a company some advice about developing a safety culture or positive safety culture within their company, sum that up for our listeners, Paul. Tell us a little bit about just wrapping it all together with a bow. What are the key initiatives or what do you what advice would you give a company who's hearing this podcast, thinking about safety and saying, you know, that's something that we really need to work on is developing a positive safety culture. Kind of sum it up for us. You know, it's it's a lot of the factors we just spoke about, John. You have to have a balanced approach. You know, no one tool will build a house. It takes a bunch of tools to build a house. You have to have all the tools in the toolbox. And safety sort of that way. You know, but if you start with policies and procedures and then you put in a behavior-based program that is driven by accountability and trust, then you're probably most of the way there. Now, there's a lot of pieces and parts to that. But the basic foundation has to begin with your policies and procedures, and then you move into the people base. Well, that's 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 a good answer. So, so that that there you have it, folks. Uh, we were able to spend you know right around thirty minutes, which is perfect, with our our guest and expert panelist on safety, Paul Amade. Paul is uh, someone that I've been knowing almost you know half of my life, and I have uh, had opportunity to uh, be around him, and not only safety environments but other environments and you know when you talk about someone who is focused on on the mission and the mission he has every day is to make sure that his people can go home to their families at the end of the day and i i really applaud that work because you know while everyone does important work that's life-saving work so thank you for what you do for not only not only your organization but i know you're involved in a lot of different associations and groups and things that you do so thank you for that Thank you, John. All right. So that really wraps it up today, folks. And what I'd like to do is, uh, again, thank everyone, because we know when you have a choice of your content, we appreciate you tuning in to Higher Up, a podcast devoted to everything human resources. Thank you so much, and have a great day. updates and more on how to break the code to unlocking occupational dna join the community at hrhigherup.com and take your business to a higher level this has been an exclusive production of sharpertalkmedia.com join the community